0: Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Our thanks to Grant and Diana for leading us in worship. Brady and Nicole were a bit under the weather this week, so we pray for speedy recovery for them and for a few others in our congregation, actually quite a few who are out sick as well. A reminder that tonight kicks off Harrison Hills VBS for our community. The response thus far has been great. And so we are very excited to be reaching the community with our gospel, impacting the lives of our children. If you desire to volunteer starting this evening, because we have a number who are out sick, if you want to swing by, we can most assuredly put you to work. Come be a part of it or just be encouraged by what the Lord is doing. So it's wonderful to have some back from Memorial Day vacation as well, some of the wonderful aspects of Being a believer, while we love being on vacation, we miss our church family, and we long to be with them. In fact, last week in Sunday school, we were talking about that very thing with Paul. After he was converted on the way to Damascus, his first inclination after doing so in Acts 9.19 was to go and be with the brethren there. A Christian desires to be with Christians. It's water for their soul. It's nourishment for their spirit. So we are very glad to have you back with us. Well, a few weeks ago, we issued fair warning that it may be a long and hot summer through Mark. While Jesus is in this deep time of teaching and mentorship with his disciples, some very difficult topics are being covered. The last two weeks have certainly been no exception as Jesus taught on sin and hell And the call to radical discipleship, hard teachings for us, offensive to the 21st century ear. I say, look around your congregation after preaching that series, and whoever is still left certainly desires truth. So I am grateful for you, that you are there for the goods. Give us the whole counsel of God, uncomfortable as it may be. Jesus spoke it, so we need to know it. Jesus taught it, and so shall we. Yet for a pastor, it's nice to be able to give the folks a little breather after such a series of passages and hard topics, issues that require one to dig deep and realities to confront. But sadly, it is not to be this morning. I wanted it for you. I really did. But beloved, the next verse is always the next verse. A dear brother of mine in the pastorate, who had actually just recently preached through Mark as well, he recently said to me, in essence, the only bad thing about finishing chapter 9 and all of its difficulties is that chapter 10 is waiting for you. If you didn't drive them off with Jesus teaching on hell and radical discipleship, our next verses may just do the trick. So this morning we will be joining Jesus as he teaches on the issue of divorce. By virtue of this, we will also be touching on some issues of marriage and remarriage as it relates to the text. Beloved, these are difficult issues. These are realities that have touched everyone in here in some fashion or another, whether directly or indirectly. So we aim to be sensitive to that while being faithful to the teaching of our Lord and to the text. But know this, beloved. Beloved. If you are listening or watching today, and divorce has touched your life in a personal way, if you be in Christ this morning, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Entering into remarriage under unbiblical circumstances is not the unpardonable sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And while Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more, he set her free. Those whom the Son has set free are free indeed. If you have come to Christ in repentance and faith, regardless of one's personal history with this, you are forgiven and free. Now you walk in truth, and help others avoid around you avoid the many snares and traps that await those who have entered into the sacred covenant vows of marriage. If someone has experienced a divorce in their life, it is likely one of the hardest and the darkest moments that they've lived through. But that is one of the beauties of conversion and of regeneration. Past sin, past hurt is all redeemed and made useful. It's not wasted in the life of the believer. God uses it going forward, not only to humble us, but to allow you to minister to others. So be encouraged this morning as we wade into these difficult waters. There's much more to say, but let us allow the text to unfold it for us. Looking to Mark chapter 10 this morning. Finally, beginning chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Mark 10, 1 through 5. And standing up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote for you this commandment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue our journey through Mark Lord, these are difficult words. It, it often feels like the hits keep coming. And Lord, as these, as we approach this, this topic that you teach on, Lord, we ask that you would give us soft hearts. We ask that you would remind us that there is no condemnation if we are in you, but Lord, that we would learn what your word says about this very important topic. And Lord, this, this devastating Uh, topic that we approach this morning. We ask that you would give us wisdom in your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, in 2008, the Barna Research Group did a study that is well-known and it's often cited, claiming that those who identified as Christian were just as likely as non-Christians to be divorced. And of course, when this came out, it was lamented from pulpits everywhere. And For opponents of Christianity, it provided a cudgel and a weapon to beat up and discredit the church as being no different than those outside the church. But upon closer inspection, we find major problems with this study. Not even so much problems with the study, so much as misinterpretation of the data and all of our tendency to simply drink in a headline number rather than to look at the actual data. Well, Harvard-trained social researcher and author Shanti Feldman, in her book, The Good News About Marriage, says that the data reveals a very different story about the divorce rate. Feldman states in her book that the 50% figure was not based on hard data, rather the number came from projections of what researchers thought the divorce rate would become after states passed no-fault divorce laws. She writes, quote, we never hit those numbers. We never even got close. Now, not that it brings a lot of comfort, but according to her study, the overall divorce rate is around 33%. But here's a further issue. If we look deeper into this Barna study, for someone to have labeled themselves in the Christian category allowed for one who simply held some sort of belief system that was not non-Christian. Now that's a very broad, broad stroke, and it would almost pigeonhole someone into calling themselves a Christian in this survey, especially in areas such as the Bible Belt, where we suffer the contagion of cultural Christianity. So if you want the real numbers, you have to dig into the categories within this study, and two very interesting trends emerge. The first shows that for what would be defined as nominal Christians— meaning those who simply call themselves Christians but don't actively engage with the faith, they are actually 20% more likely than the general population to get divorced. Oh, I wanted to camp on that, but I will resist for now. We may revisit that very predictable finding later on. But more importantly, we found that among active, church-going Christians— the divorce was approximately 50% lower than those who were non-churchgoers. And while that's still far too many, we need to dispel inaccuracies. The church should not and does not look like the world. And in the area of divorce, with those who are more likely to have a living and active walk with the Lord, what Barna would call active churchgoers, the divorce rate is substantially less than the world. And indeed it should be. Because the sentence upon divorce has been decreed in scripture. The Lord speaking in Malachi 2:16 proclaims, I hate divorce. There's no equivocation here. The Lord doesn't speak cryptically. And if we dig into the circumstances that provoked the Lord to say such a thing, indeed if we watch the pattern of divorce throughout biblical history, we will see something amazing we'll see that there's nothing new under the sun. We're going to see a constant theme and trend. Now, first, if we're to understand the Lord's statement in Malachi, we must understand the historical context for Malachi. Now, most will know that there was a time in history where Israel was led captive to Babylon for 70 years due to her continual idolatry. Now, having returned to Israel, you'll recall that both the temple and and Jerusalem had been rebuilt. Right? They've been restored from the desecration of the Babylonians. And yet, though the Israelites returned in body to their homeland, their hearts had not been changed. Their hearts were still far from him. However, one thing that the captivity did accomplish was a hardened religious resolve to adhere to all the temple rituals. This was the birth of the thousands and thousands of rules that we would later see with the Pharisees. Do you remember those? Yeah, this is the birthplace. We got banished to Babylon for idols. There's no way we're going to do that again. So we're going to make a thousand rules to make sure that no one makes God angry again. That was the response of the people. All legalism, no heart for God. But legalism is not... Only self-righteous. A disguised attempt to to earn your salvation by keeping a list of rules. But what is the root of self-righteousness? What is the heart sin that would even begin to think that it could earn God's favor to begin with? It's pride. It's pride. And pride deludes. Pride causes God to resist you. Pride blinds you to sin. And so it was for the children of Israel. Having returned to their homeland from captivity, they became staunchly legalistic so as to never get sent back into captivity again. And that legalist, that legalism, that self-righteousness, that pride deluded them to the point that they had made a culturally, religiously acceptable pathway for them to begin marrying Gentile women, which was strictly forbidden. But not just marrying Gentile women, but divorcing their Jewish women to do it. Now, because we briefly spoke of rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple, many of you probably thought of the prophet Nehemiah, didn't you? And you'd be right to do that. Nehemiah was a a contemporary of Malachi. They were both known as post-exilic prophets, meaning they were prophets in in Israel post-exile from Babylon. Now, many know the story of Nehemiah and rebuilding the wall. And Nehemiah gives us great insight into what was going on in Israel with these marriages and divorces. Now, I'll read to you from here, Nehemiah chapter 13. Listen to this. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. These were idolatrous women. These are pagan women. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and one of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon King of Israel? Sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused him even to sin. Do we then hear about you, that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Oh, so the people are divorcing their Jewish wives to marry pagan Gentile wives, and look who started it. The priests. How do you expect the people to walk rightly when the very models that are set before them are corrupt? How many times do you grieve every time you see another headline of a prominent minister in sexual sin? Nothing new under the sun. But this now gives us historic context for the Lord's very bold, very clear statement in Malachi 2. Let me read the surrounding verses for you here in Malachi, where the Lord states his hatred for divorce. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already, because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, and refuse and refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. And skipping down, for the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble. By the instruction, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. All Israel had taken to this practice you started, and you made it religiously acceptable. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut cut him off from the tents of Jacob. Everyone who awakes and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts, This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. God's saying, I don't want your religiosity. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Who is that? That's their Jewish wife. The wife of their youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Do we see this now? We need to make this connection to where we're going today. What we are reading here. What we see today, what we just read, is essentially the end of the Old Testament. This is how it ends. God's saying, stop divorcing your Jewish wives and taking pagan Gentile ones. I hate that. You're profaning my temple to feed your own lusts and your own desires. That is the state of marriage and divorce in the land of Israel as we commence 400 years of silence till a baby would be born in Bethlehem. And let's take a guess. With this practice now instituted, with divorce becoming the acceptable norm in Israel, in fact, your own priests are divorcing their Jewish wives to take pagan ones. As we open our Gospels now, Do we think that this practice, this acceptance of divorce, has gotten any better? Well, I think we know the answer to that. as we dig into our text, we will see how much the Jews of 400 years ago were like our Pharisees. And indeed, how much we today are also still like the Pharisees. The spirit of our age has not changed. The spirit of divorce has not changed. Men's hearts are still the same. God's feeling on the subject has not changed either. The Lord does not change. So with that precursor in place, let's look at our text. Beginning with verse 1. Beginning with verse 1. And standing up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Now pause there. That's such a monumental move given in such a few short words. And standing up, he went from there. Where is there? Well, we know from chapter 9 that he was in a house in Capernaum. He was there, low key, remember? Coming through there, low key. But I want you to mark this point in Jesus' geography. When Jesus rises and leaves Galilee here, when he leaves Capernaum, he will never again return before his death. Jesus is heading south now, south, south toward Jerusalem. At this point, Jesus has less than six months until death. Now, why does that matter, Lanesville, 2022? Why does that matter? How different would you live? How different would you speak if you knew you had less than six months to live? Everything would matter, wouldn't it? Every word, every day would take on special meaning and special importance. Well, guess what? Jesus does know that he has less than six months until his death. So would he talk about the silly issues or would he hit on the big ones? The time remaining in Jesus' life at this point matters because it's sharpening the priorities. No time is wasted. If Jesus is taking time to address this at this moment, it is a weighty matter. It's a weighty matter. But why now? Why leave Capernaum at this point? Because Jesus aims to arrive in Jerusalem when? At Passover. At Passover. The journey has begun. I want you to begin putting that in your mind. So it's time to go. Now, our text tells us that he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Well, this area is what's known as Perea. This is what's known as Jesus' Perean ministry. Now, we won't go into a lot of detail here on that, but suffice, suffice to say that Perea ran to the east of Samaria. It ran to the east of it. Now, did Jews like going into Samaria? Did Jews like Samaritans? No, not at all, right? So they would walk a whole bunch of extra miles toward the east to be able to walk south to Jerusalem through Perea instead of having to go through Samaria. So why does Mark record this for us? Well, a few reasons. One is to show us that Jesus would have been surrounded by a largely Jewish population in these areas, along with people who were already starting to travel south for the Passover to Jerusalem. That's one reason to give us the to give us his audience. And the second is to subtly remind us who rules the area Jesus is now in. Of course, we know that is Herod Antipas. And we'll see in a moment how pivotal that is for the trap that's about to be sprung on Jesus. Now, back to our text. Crowds gathered around him again. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Most of this is in what we call the imperfect tense, meaning that Jesus was doing this quite continually as he made his way south toward Jerusalem. And of course, who has been there all along? Who has been watching Jesus every move, seeking a way to destroy him, seeking a way to have him killed all the way back early in Mark? Our good friends, the Pharisees. And behold, they come bearing a question. Verse 2, verse 2. And some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. Well, for this line of questioning to make sense, we have to understand the different teachings of the day. There were three primary thoughts concerning divorce as followed by the Pharisees and, as the, and the people as a whole. One was a very minor view, so I won't go into that. So we'll focus on the big two. The first and by far the most popular was a very liberal view of divorce that was propagated by the rabbi Hillel. And he taught that divorce was allowable really for any reason as determined by the man. And I mean any reason. She doesn't cook as good as she used to. Throw her to the curb. That's not an exaggeration. That is how women were treated and how marriage was valued. (laughs) The second was Rabbi Shammai. Now, his was the conservative view, right? He advocated that divorce essentially was was not allowed but in extreme unseemly conduct, such as adultery. So you really had these two views. The liberal popular view, I can do whatever I want as the man for really any reason. And the conservative view that it was really never allowed except for extreme cases. Which, by the way, was almost a moot point because if a woman was caught in adultery, she could be stoned anyway, thereby freeing the man. So here now come our Pharisees to test Jesus. Now when Pharisees question Jesus, it is meant to be a trap. We know that. It is meant to be some sort of inescapable question that leaves Jesus cornered at any turn. You would think they would have learned by now. Yet I'm sure that they thought with this question they had a surefire win. Number one, did the Pharisees know which rabbi Jesus would side with? Well, the answer is neither. Jesus sides with Scripture. But a better question, did they know that Jesus would not side with the liberal view of divorce? Of course they knew. Jesus had already made his position known back in Matthew 5, 31 through 32. Jesus publicly said, it was said, speaking of Deuteronomy 24, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So unless Jesus plans on changing his view, we've got him. Once the whole crowd knows his position on divorce, they're going to turn against him. But that's just a bonus. If we can get Jesus on record, supporting the conservative view of divorce, and condemning the liberal view of divorce... Let's remind ourselves, who rules this area? Herod Antipas. What happened to the last person who told Herod that his divorce and his marriage was illicit and sinful? It cost John the Baptist his head for this very offense. If they can get Jesus to affirm this position they will run straight to Herod and Herodias, which, by the way, that fortress was very close by where they were. And perhaps they won't even need to kill Jesus now. The Tetrarch will do it for them. So the question here in verse 2 is downright diabolical. They want Jesus to proclaim his own death sentence in his answer. Herodias would certainly have him killed. They knew Jesus' views on divorce. They knew he would condemn the liberal view. And now large swaths of his following will hate him, and Herod will do the rest. It's beautiful. That's our scene. Oh, what will Jesus do? They've got him now. They will condemn him with his own words. Let's watch Jesus' response in verse 3. Verse 3. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? Jesus just dropped sola scriptura all over their heads scripture alone away with your rabbis away with your traditions what did Moses command you what does scripture say and we learn something from our Lord here if we want to talk about divorce we need to go to scripture society is going to have a lot to say. Culture will have its norms. It will have a lot to say about marriage and divorce and parenting as well. But it's the wisdom of the world. What does Scripture say? That outdated, dusty book. What does it say? These are matters that confront us today. We will listen. will we listen to the wisdom of the world, even when it's cloaked in, in pious language? or will we listen to the words that were breathed out by God concerning his desire for this sacred union and covenant? Now, as we look back to our text, if we were to look to Matthew's recording of this account in Matthew 19, and we'll, we'll be there quite a bit throughout this series, we'll reference it more later on, we see that Jesus answers the Pharisees, Have you not read? Have you not read? Jesus doesn't take them back to the scrolls of Hillel or Shammai in Matthew 19. Jesus takes them back to Genesis. You may remember that this was really sarcasm on Jesus' part. When he says, have you not read? This was a slam. This was a rebuke. Jesus takes them back to Genesis. We'll see this next week. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. And therefore, God has joined together. Let no man separate. Marriage is not a matter of culture, it is a matter of creation. I'll say that again. Marriage is not a matter of culture, it is a matter of creation. God joined them together in creation. And this liberal divorce tears at the fabric of that creation. Indeed, to whom would Adam and Eve have remarried? To whom? What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. One commentator expands on this Hebrew word for joined in Genesis 2.24. It denotes the strongest possible bond and can be translated cling, fasten its grip, Follow closely, hold fast, stay close, stick together. Stuck. Stuck. Marriage involves two people unbreakably connected together, glued and pursuing hard after each other to be united in mind, will, body, spirit, and emotion. Have they read, Jesus asks in Matthew? Of course they've read. But reading, they do not see. Reading, they look for a loophole. Reading, they look for a way to twist and contort. Reading, they supplant to their own tradition, which, lucky for them, conforms beautifully to their own lusts and desires, especially as it relates to the matter of divorce. They were dealing treacherously with the wife of their youth. And the Pharisees, just like the priests in Malachi and Nehemiah, led the way in doing this. Not only did they lead the way, they gave religious cover for the masses to do so. Beloved, if you search long and hard enough, you will find a religious authority to condone any activity you can fathom. It's all out there. But, we will, but will we subject ourselves to Scripture? What did Moses command you? As we look to the response of the Pharisees, we will see that they not only misinterpreted Moses' command to the people, but they took it out of context as well. It reminded me of a favorite coffee cup I have at home, playing off of Philippians 4.13, right, which says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And my mug says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. And that is exactly what the Pharisees did and allowed others to do who looked to them for guidance and enforcement. Liberal divorce ran rampant in Israel because of this teaching and following Rabbi Hillel. They had heaped upon themselves teachers who told them what they wanted to hear. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. There was no support in Scripture for what Israel was doing. But lucky us, we can do all things through a verse taken out of context. And indeed, that is what they do. Looking at verse 4, we'll see the complete swing and a miss by the Pharisees here in our next verse. Verse 4, look at the Pharisees' response. And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Well, here we see reference to Deuteronomy 24. And beloved, here is where translation matters so much. Words matter, and often in instances such as this, translational, translational language can imply something that's not there. So let me bear with me, but let me read from you, read for you from Deuteronomy 24 from the NASB. Your LSB uh, legacy standard will be the same. And I'll emphasize a few words here to see if we catch this. Pay attention. When a man takes a wife, Deuteronomy 24, and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. What things do we observe here? First and most important observation is Moses describing a situation that is occurring or is Moses prescribing an action to take place? He's describing it, isn't he? And it happens. And he writes. And she leaves. Moses is not saying, go do this and you shall. Moses is saying, this is what happens. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. Now, here's where translation matters so very much. Now, I love the King James Version. It's eloquent in in many areas, has many other benefits. But let us look to Deuteronomy 24 in the King's English and see what happens. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it comes to pass that she find, find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him... Write her a bill of divorce and give it in her hand and send her out of the house. And when she is departed out of the house, she may go and be another man's wife. You see what happened there? The king's English language is written permissively, but the Hebrew is nothing of the sort. Thankfully, more formal translations have caught that. And of course, the observation of Moses is not... It's not just hanging on a mere Hebrew translation, beloved. It is baked into the very foundation of creation. Everywhere. When Moses is writing here, he's making an observation of what the husband has done. Nowhere in this passage is divorce being condoned or commended or commanded. In fact, ironically, if we were to read all the way through verse 4 in, in Deuteronomy 24, we would find that the entire section is really dealing with the issue of remarriage than divorce. It's, the, it's an observation of an act. It's not an approval or a mandate of it, as the Pharisees had so wrongly concluded. In fact, there's no command in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, through 4, concerning divorce. There's no command in there concerning divorce. The only actual command is concerning remarriage. And we know that they misread it by reading their response in Matthew's telling of this Chapter 19, verse 7. Chapter 19, verse 7. I'll read it for you. They said to him, this is the Pharisees talking to Jesus. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Did Moses command that? Did he command that? No. We demonstrated that earlier. It was their sinful actions toward one another in marriage. The effects of the fall that had marred God's plan and purpose for marriage that made this necessary. Moses recognized the reality of divorce because of people's sin. Because of people's hard hearts. So it needs to be regulated. It's like getting a speeding ticket. The the officer is not condoning your speeding by writing you a ticket. The state government is not condoning speeding by recognizing that people speed. And we're going to need to regulate that reality, right? We're going to need to deal with the reality that people speed. And so it is. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote for you this commandment. We don't want to know God's heart on the matter. We want to know what you think the law says we can get away with. We want to know which rabbi is not is right. None of them. Genesis is right. Genesis is right. I created them male and female and they will be joined to one another. They're not to be separated. This is my spoken will. But speeders going to speed. Dogs going to bark. Sinners going to sin. So we can't just let this run rampant. There has to be rules in place because this is going to happen. And these rules Moses put in place are not there to give license to our lust or our desire, to allow us to trample underfoot God's design. Our ability to write your wife a decree of divorce is there because of the hard heart. It's a condemnation upon the heart of man that we have this ability to write a certificate of divorce. That's a condemnation. But hearts are hard, and it's going to happen. While men would write this decree haphazardly, it should be made, it should make them weep. This is what happened because of a hard heart. Sclerocardia, meaning a stubborn attitude toward changing one's behavior. A hardness of heart, insensitivity, an unyielding frame of mind, obstinacy, perverseness, coldness, stubbornness, sclerocardia. That's why. Beloved, we live with the reality of divorce in our lives and society. As we began with saying, it has likely reached out and touched every one of us, either directly or indirectly. Sin never stays stagnant. It affects everyone around us. And this is particularly true of divorce. Now, we've only begun to wade into this heavy topic. We likely have two more series on this. There's much more to say on it, and we are going to dive even deeper next week. But still, beloved, we have all felt the pain that accompanies sin. We've felt the consequences of a hard heart. May it humble us. May it cause us to cling tighter and walk closer to our Savior. Beloved, there is an enemy of our souls. There's an enemy of our marriages that seeks to destroy them. But more deadly still, there is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. In the pride of life. And John says that is more deadly still. Jesus didn't blame divorce on the devil. He cast it at the feet of our heart. And as always, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, Lord, these are difficult texts. Lord, as we just begin to wade into the deep waters of marriage, divorce, remarriage, your teaching on this, Scripture's exhortation of this, Lord, we need hearts that are willing to receive. Lord, there may be hearts in here that are hurt by this, that still this is a a very new and, and tender reality in their life. We ask that the ministering, healing balm of the Holy Spirit would be applied to that. Lord, that the good word, the water of the spirit, the truth of the word might be able to invade those sores and invade those hurts. And Lord, make all things new Lord, that you take hearts of stone and you give hearts of flesh. And Lord, for that, we are eminently grateful in Jesus mighty name we pray. Amen.